Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hey, Jason, do you remember BPI? Oh, yeah, Blind LGBT Pride International. They're a special interest affiliate of ACB. Yes, they are the ones doing all these cool things at convention, yoga, wine tastings, fun parties, as well as other interesting learning activities. Well, guess what they're up to now? Ooh, do tell. They are now having their own show on ACB Radio Mainstream. It's called Pride Connection. That's great, but what if I'm not a part of the LGBT community? No worries. This is a show for everyone. Actually, non-LGBT and non-disabled folks are known as allies, and they are a huge portion of BPI's membership. And in the words of BPI's leadership, everyone is welcome. BPI is proud to offer an open space where you can be yourself. Mm, So what kinds of topics can I expect from Pride Connection? Fun and relevant topics for everyone, from blindness topics to LGBT education, technology to advocacy, accessibility issues to everyday topics. So when will Pride Connection take place? Every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in so we can all connect, mingle, and learn while having fun. Pride Connection. Join the BPI party every Tuesday at 10 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesday at 10 p.m. on ACB Radio Main, or wherever you get your podcasts. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, Welcome back to another edition of Pride Connection. I'm Anthony Corona. I'm here with Leah Gardner. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Cool, cool. And of course, Gabriel Lopez Cafati. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Leah. And hey, everyone out there on ACB Radio. We will introduce our guests in a moment, but we also have a special co-host this evening. Joining us is a new BPI member, Sarah Chung. Hello, everyone. Nice to meet all of you and be here. More about Sarah later. So, Gabe, give us your quick president's message, and then we'll introduce our guests. Absolutely. We're very excited um, to be getting all your wonderful feedback, and we're all so excited to be with you, obviously premiering on Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern or 10 p.m. Mainstream on ACB Radio, and then the repeats on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Sundays at 7 and 7. Thank you for tuning in. We do this for everyone in our community. And uh, today we're very excited. As you heard, Anthony, we have a co-host who's a new member of PPI. And we are in for a treat because we have delightful guests. Please join us. Please tune in and please keep us posted on any comments and any other topics or persons or any subject that you want us to touch here on Pride Connection, 
So I'll let Leah introduce our amazing guests today and we'll get ready to have some fun with them and have an awesome conversation. So a couple weeks ago, one of our core members, Jessica Kell, passed on a video to all of us at BPI and said, hey, you, you really need, you need to check this out. You need to watch this. It's uh, audio described and um, it's free and it's pretty amazing in terms of the representation of the process of losing sight. I am pretty busy all day. I work for a tech company. And typically at night, I end up being asleep early. I decided that evening that she shared this particular video that I was just going to check it out. I was going to, uh, you know, listen to it for maybe 10 minutes just to give, it, give a sense of whether it's something we could use on the show or not. Well, <laughs> I didn't just listen for 10 minutes. I was rooted for the entire uh, about 90 minute program. And so to catch my attention like that at the end of the day, something has to be pretty riveting. And yeah. that video was going blind. And the documentary portrays Joseph Lovett, who's with us today. And uh, 10 years ago, I did not realize until I spoke with Joe that the video was released 10 years ago because it is still so relevant today. I will say one thing that did catch my attention is that nobody had an iPhone or an Android device. And I thought that that was a little bit strange, but now I understand why. The documentary is based on Joe's experience as he is losing more vision in his one good eye. And through that chapter, Joe interviews a number of people that also lost their vision later in life. And he also speaks to medical professionals, including his ophthalmologist and some other medical professionals about his particular visual situation dealing with glaucoma. glaucoma. What I really was impressed with is the attitude of the documentary and the portrayal. There was not any of the pity and darkness and misery on some level that you that you catch a lot in any presentation about blindness and I love Joe's approach to uh, learning about what might be in store and actually talking to other people that were visually impaired to gain insight so to speak into their experiences as opposed to simply jumping to conclusions. I was going to say that he gives a perfect mix of Talking to people, scientific explanation, medical explanation, and his own personal process. Great. As he continues on his journey with, with his precarious vision in one eye and some of the, the trials of trying to keep as much as possible, interspersed are some people who have undergone their own journeys. So we have today with us Joseph Lovett, and we're really excited that you're here, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Leah. And we also have Jessica Jones, who was featured in the documentary quite prominently. And Jessica is actually a, an art instructor for blind students. I was very intrigued by her ability to 
continue her passion for art even after sight loss. So Jessica, it's great to have you on the program. Welcome. Hey everybody, just so you know, I am here with my dog Willie. Yeah. All right. And <laughs> we have lots of dogs. I'm here with Vander, who hopefully will continue sleeping until we're done with this program. <laughs> I know, I just and, fed Willie, so he's nice and quiet. And <laughs> Anthony and myself are here with our respective dogs. My dog, is her name is Posh. Uh-huh. And Anthony's dog, his name is Bodie. Yes. Are they, are yes. they all labs? Yeah, Posh is a yellow lab. I'm Bodie also here with, with my German Shepherd, London. I'm a German Shepherd person. I, uh, my dog is not a seeing eye dog. Um, but I don't qualify yet, but, um, but I have a German shepherd. She's my seventh actually. So and we're she, just the show. She, the show has gone to the dogs today. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a dog in every, in every <coughs> home. That's right. <laughs> participating actually, today. Actually, when I was doing the film, I was really quite surprised. Once I realized how dogs had changed people's lives so they enormously, do. I was stunned at such a, small percentage of people who could use seeing eye dogs had them and um I'm, I'm hoping that when people see the film it will encourage people to um who may be feeling you know, more shut in than they need to be that um what a dog can do for them one of the things that i loved that you actually incorporated into your video was you asked jessica if you could if you could pet her dog mm-hmm. and of course she said no because he, he was working and i thought that was a great addition because so often mm-hmm. as guide dog users we encounter mm-hmm. people that want to interact and they don't even ask if they can interact so right yeah i really appreciated that addition and i know that your your film has been on public television since its release many times and so in that way i'm i'm really happy that at least some degree of the population is getting that message because every time I walk down the street somebody wants to interact with Bander so well actually um, public television has just signed us up for another five years of showing going blind oh, which good. is very exciting the last five year uh, fun <laughs> we had with them they had over 1100 airings in 85 percent of the country and that they want it again, uh, I think, goes to show what the need is. That's exceptional. And, then, and it, yeah. particularly because it's such a real and personally candid expedition, basically, of blindness. Mm-hmm. And blind people are actually the voices in the video. Could you, for us, just give us people that have not seen the video an introduction to what you were hoping to convey through making the documentary? Sure. Um, I had been in treatment for glaucoma for 15 years, and I was doing very well and pretty much thought of glaucoma as a benign disease, as the general public tends to think, although I had had some exposure to the to medical conferences because I would show clips of the film at medical conferences to give a patient perspective, and I would hear the ophthalmologist refer to glaucoma as a, a relentless disease and um, make jokes like, uh, how can you make sure you will never see your patient go blind from glaucoma? And the answer is to move. That, that's a patient that sort of changes your point of view uh, away from the, the common uh, expectations of this disease where you just take a couple of drops and you're fine. Mm-hmm. But my doctors would never be willing to talk to me about what, when I would ask what happens when the rest of it goes. So I started to talk to people on the street, and Jessica used to live right around the corner from me, and I met her actually 
as she was training Chef, her uh, previous dog, she, I was so impressed with what she had to say because she, in a few minutes, she took me into a world that I knew nothing about. And I realized that this was fascinating to me, not just because I was losing my vision, but because it was a secret world. So we started to shoot. Jessica was our the very first person that we started to shoot. And we cut some of what we shot with her and uh, started to fundraise, you know, with that material. Uh, the film took about five years to make, I guess. Really? And, uh, oh, yeah. Well, I had, a, I was, you know, I had a production company who was doing all the work. And, you know, you had to raise the money to do the work and, you know, to, to shoot and raise more money to, to edit. It's difficult as an independent filmmaker. But the film basically uh, is my attempt to learn what my doctors were telling me, and that is how do I adjust to vision loss. And I was lucky enough to meet uh, some wonderful people, uh, Jessica at the beginning, and then I was introduced to Ray Kornman, who was then at the Seeing Eye, and uh, Steve Baskus, um, who was a, a blinded veteran, 22-year-old kid at the time, who had lost his eyes in a roadside bomb attack in Iraq. And we met him at the Heinz Blind Rehab Center in Illinois, in Chicago. And Peter Ilya, uh, an 85-year-old architect with macular degeneration. And then my young friend, uh, Emmett Turan, who at the time was 11 years old. His parents were close friends of mine. And he and his father both suffer from um, strabismus, from um, albinism. And Patty, there's a Patty. And Patty, uh, yeah, right. Patricia Williams, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Patricia is uh, was working at the VA here in New York on 23rd Street. And uh, I just learned so much from everybody's experience was different. The interesting story, you know, you, you say you're happy, happy that it wasn't, you know, a, a sort of a maudlin, a maudlin film and it's rather inspiring and uplifting. But before we started to shoot, uh, Jessica and I, uh, Jessica said, you know, Joe, you really shouldn't be doing the story on me. And I said, well, wh- why do you mean? Just because you're you know, incredibly articulate, you know, gorgeous and have a cute dog, you'd be bad for television. Why not you? <laughs> and she said, you don't understand. She said, Joe, I'm not the face of blind. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you met me training my dog out on the street on my way to work, you know, 10 miles away from my home independently. And she said, because I've had great opportunities and, you know, and uh, great training and I have a certain attitude. That's not the face of blind, unfortunately. She said the face of blind is who I was a few years ago, which was terribly depressed, alone in my room, uh, thinking that my life was pretty much over. That's the face of blind. And I said, well, you know what? Let's change the face of blind and let's start with you. And um, that's what we've tried to do. Ever since the film was released, we've had an outreach called Going Blind and Going Forward, where we take the film to universities, to medical schools, to residency programs, so that young ophthalmologists can know what their patients are actually going through. And we take it to, to patient and community groups so they can know what's afforded to them. I'm curious about talking with you about your experience because what I really liked is you you kind of burst onto the video <laughs> with lots of positivity, but understanding that you lost your sight a little bit later in life too. And you had developed a career as an artist and using your your vision intensely to, to to make a living and i'm curious if you can talk about your journey from losing your vision and actually getting to a place where you became as 
optimistic and, and positive and vibrant as you appear in the film. I think that it honestly and truly has a lot to do with my upbringing. There is zero disability in my family, hmm. but I was raised by a single mother who had three kids and worked full time. And what she always taught us and continues to teach us now is you don't just sit around and wait somebody to do something for you. You must be able to take care of yourself. And I, when I was going through the process of losing sight and it happened so radically quickly, Mm. I could not imagine. I was over, let me preface this by saying I was unbelievably overwhelmed. You know, I didn't know what I was going to be able to do. But a few months into it, I was like, oh, hell no. I cannot stop my life. This is not the person I am. And what's really incredible is that, you know, after losing my sight and mean, meeting more and more people with low vision or with sight loss and recognizing how I was treated as a person with a disability, how those other people were being treated as a person with a disability was shocking to me. You know, apart from being a woman, I've never had anything influence the way people treated me. I'm white. I am educated. I am very successful at what I do. But all of a sudden, I became blind. And nobody, ex and not my family, but people in the public, mm -hmm. nobody expected anything from me. I was not mm -hmm. capable of doing anything. I was expected to do nothing. And my education, my success in life meant nothing because it was such a tragedy of what had happened to me. That just really doesn't work for me. As a teacher and working with the student, students that I do who not only are blind and have low vision, but they have multiple disabilities, seeing the way they are treated out in public just infuriates me. It's so wrong in every way whatsoever. And yes, I'm an art teacher, but I think that my number one priority is to teach them you are just as equal and valued as anybody else in this world. You know, one of the things that I learned, not just doing the film, but um, showing the film, is that, of course, you know, blindness is one of the things that people fear most in this world. You know, it's up yes. there with death and cancer and AIDS and if not beyond. And I realized um, after having had the experience of, of researching this film, meeting the wonderful people that I did, working with them so closely, I realized that a sighted person's fear of blindness is based on uh, ignorance and myth because most sighted people have never known anyone who has, quote, successfully, unquote, yes. lost their vision. And I was so privileged to have met people like that. And to understand that, you know, this is not the desired state of affairs for a person. But, you know, if that's what happens, you can just carry on. It takes some ingenuity and takes some learning and, and takes some guts, but you can do it. Well, I'm going to jump in here and I want to go back to Jessica for a second. You lost it rel relatively rapidly midlife and your profession obviously bodes with it would be much easier to do with eyesight 
you went through a period where you didn't know what to do, I'm sure. Um, I have a very similar story. I lost my eyesight four years ago and I had a thriving career. And I'm wondering if you could speak upon a lot of the perception out there, and Joe touches on it in the film, but it's not one of the main themes, is that there's the perception that you're either blind from birth or you lose it when you're old. When you're midlife, they don't really know what to do with you. Their services aren't really set up to help you. So could you talk a little bit about what, when you got that zest to go back into life, what some of those experiences were like? I was working through a very, very well-known organization for the blind to go through rehab, O&M, et cetera, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew very early on that I wanted to see a job counselor because I had to figure out how I was going to get back to work teaching. And they kept saying, but Jessica, you're not ready for that. You have finished your rehab. You haven't finished your O&M, et cetera, and so forth. And I said, oh, no, I assure you I'm ready. So eventually I talked them into it. And the job counselor that I was assigned to kept trying to tell me that I could sell newspapers or box things <laughs> in a factory or work in a bagel cart, none of which are wrong. There are, there's nothing wrong with any nope. of those things. But that was not I had set myself up to do in life. And I kept pushing the point and pushing the point and pushing the point with this man. And finally, he threw his hands up in the air. He said, I just don't know what to do with you. <laughs> I don't know how to help you. I have a very close friend. She was born without vision. You know, her family here, here in New York took one look at the State Commission for the Blind and said, oh, no, no, they're not going to help our daughter. And she has her doctorate and is a very successful woman. And she's done it all on her own, but with really wonderful family support. Mm -hmm. And that is the same thing that I have gotten. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. It's been true. You know, we talked with a musician on last week's program and we heard the same story. And I went on a very long uh, soapbox about <laughs> the department, the department of rehab and how the expectation bar is set extraordinarily low for children, even coming up through high school and going to college. Like you get out of college and rehab says to you, I've, I've been blind pretty much since birth. Okay, do you want to go work for the IRS? Do you want to be a vendor? Mm -hmm. in, or in a call center. Or a call yeah. center. And in my case, I wanted to work in radio. But again, we come back to this point that no matter when somebody loses vision, the Department of Rehabilitation is simply not equipped to work with that person's talents and uh, career goals or help them continue in, in a career that they had established. I'm hoping somebody from the Department of Rehab in one of the states will, will listen <laughs> to this and yeah, maybe get yeah. in touch with us and offer an alternate viewpoint because, again, we're hammering at this point again. But I think what angers me most is the expectation level and the bar mm -hmm. is set so low. And I know, Jessica, it sounds like you ran right into that low bar and were falling over it, trying to 
get your career back in, in action again? The focus of Joe's film was very focused on the process and what happens when yes. and so on and so forth. But, you know, we would, I'd love like a, a follow-up called Faces of Blind or something of that ilk. There is one coming out. It's called Vision Portraits. And it's by oh. a young filmmaker named Rodney Evans. And uh, Rodney has a background in uh, narrative films as well as documentaries. And he released uh, this film this past year. I think it premiered at South by Southwest. And it's going to be on the World Channel starting in June. And it's not dissimilar from Going Blind. And he, like me, is out for search. And, and he's, a, he's a filmmaker who's losing his vision to retinitis pigmentosa. And so he goes out to speak to other artists to see how they are, have dealt with their vision loss or are dealing with their progressive vision loss. And it's a very touching and, and wonderful film, very beautiful film. That'll be in the um, pipeline for everybody to, to enjoy as well. But Jessica, years. before we move on from this, you did end up back where you wanted to be. Could you just speak a tiny bit about how that happened? Because there's a lot of people having this conversation and I think it would be helpful once they see, you know, going blind and then hear, we don't know how you actually got back into it. If you could give us a little bit of that, please. Primarily, it was getting Chef. Chef is the dog that you see in the film. Um, I could not have done it as a cane traveler. I was mm. absolutely terrified of the people around me seeing a woman who was not able to see them and taking advantage of the situation. Absolutely. You got the dog. How many no's did you get before you started teaching again? That's what I was leading up to. Okay. Is that I got a lot of no's. <laughs> a lot. How could a blind person possibly teach visual art? And I had gotten a part-time job teaching an after-school program in sculpture in the school where I had been teaching when I lost my vision. And I went to the principal of that school, who is a really good friend of mine, and I sat her down and I said, okay, I want you to imagine that you need to hire a new art teacher. And it comes down to a choice between me and somebody who can see. Who are you going to hire? And she said, that's a really unfair question for you to ask simply because <laughs> I know what you do. I know how good you are. I said, but if I didn't know you and you came in here expecting to teach art as a blind person, I would have to think to myself, well, how much money is that going to cost me if she wants to teach? Mm -hmm. Is she going to need a sighted assistant? If she wants to teach with scissors and exacto knives, you know, things that can hurt a blind child, is she liable? That was a huge message for me. So I wanted to jump in. Uh, this is Gabriel. And I wanted to um, go to a different part of the um, documentary. As Anthony said earlier, he relates a lot with you, Jessica, because of the way you both lost vision, your sight um, later in life and how you had to readapt and go through the process later in life. I found myself so uh, related to you, Joe, in terms of medical and the process of trying to save and holding on to the amount of vision that you have remaining. I was diagnosed with retinitis, retinitis pigmentosa right. at nine, 
um, early 40s now. And I've dealt with retinitis pigmentosa since I was nine. My parents led um, a journey. I, I echo Jessica's sentiment and how fundamental family can be. My parents were, even though they were in denial themselves, they were a great support for me. Actually, I, I recently did another show on ACB Radio and I talk about my life and my process. But, uh, but it's, it's amazing when we go through vision loss, we do so many things to try to hold on to whatever amount of vision. Uh, I've done everything, acupuncture, uh, I've done embryonic treatments, I've done so many things. And at the end of the day, I ended up losing my sight almost completely, where now I only have light perception. What can be said about that is, even though if you try, there's nothing wrong with trying to save any amount of sight that you have, is there's a possibility. But even if you end up not saving much of it there's there's still life there's still so much to do after that of course so, yeah yeah well one of the things that we dealt with in the film and then also in very much in our uh, educational outreach is low vision therapy and trying to get ophthalmologists to refer people to mm -hmm. low vision therapy very early yeah. uh, my first appointment with a low vision therapist i sat across stood across the room from her and she had me focus on her nose and cover one eye. And uh, she said, okay, so what do you see of me? And I said, gee, I see, your, I see your head, I see your neck, and then I don't see you again until your hips. And she said, mm. that's your scotoma, that's your visual field law. And I had no idea. I said, how, how could that possibly be? And she said, well, clearly you, you naturally scan to make up the difference. And so your brain fills everything in with the, mm -hmm. basically the images that you take while you scan. She said, but if you didn't scan, I would have taught you how to do that. Well, I was wiped out by this. It was a bit humiliating because I think of myself as an intelligent, observant person who's worked as a medical journalist for years. And um, that I would not have any idea of this was, was overwhelming. And she said, she explained to me that I was in danger with this lower hemisphere loss. And she took my head and she said, when you walk down a stairway, when you walk across a threshold, when you walk off a curb, you must look down. And she shoved my face down until I could see my feet. And she said, mm. your, your brain thinks that your feet are somewhere that they are not. And it's very dangerous for you. So you must coordinate your, your eyes and your brain and your feet. And then once you actually catch sight of your feet and where they are in a, in a situation, then it's safe mm -hmm. for you to go. I was still devastated. And the next day I was with my shrink and I was un literally unable to talk. I sobbed uncontrollably for an hour. And then as I walked out of her office, I walked down. She had a very long uh, hallway, uh, entrance hall, very beautiful marble hallway. And I walked down the hallway and I... Uh, and she had these two big glass doors and I pushed open the doors and I burst out laughing. And the reason I burst out laughing is because for the very first time in the two years since she had been at that address, I didn't trip on her threshold. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was only because the therapy, the uh, low vision therapist had said, you must look down and see your feet when you go through a doorway, when you walk down the stair. And I literally burst out laughing. And, I, and this is from, you know, abject misery. And I said to myself, if you've learned that much in 10 minutes, how much, is, how much more is there to learn? You know, and doing the film, I got to tell you, I learned so much from Jessica and Steve and Peter and Emmett, I mean, and Pat. 
you know, plus uh, at the Heinz Blind Rehab Center, I learned so much. You know, glaucoma is a progressive disease like RP. So you lose pieces of vision as you're, you know, along the way. And every time I would lose a chunk of vision, I would be devastated. I mean, devastated. Oh, I, I, I can relate I, to that as well. You know, I'd get sick to my stomach and I'd say, oh God, what's going to go next? And how am I going to do this? And how am I going to do that? And blah, blah, blah. You know, basically catastrophizing the future as much as I possibly could. And then when in the film, you'll see uh, me talking to uh, Sam Janiskowskis, who's a, uh, a dexterity uh, teacher at, at, yes. at Heinz. And Sam relates to me that he has retinoschisis, which is the, the disease that, you know, he could lose his vision, or his vision pretty much totally in a moment. And I said, oh, my gosh, Sam, how are you going to deal with that? And blah, blah, blah. And he says, Joe, there's something you've really got to understand. He said, you can't spend your whole life preparing for the future, trying to know exactly what you're going to do when this happens, when that happens, when the other happens. He says, you have to deal with the now. If things get worse, he said, then you deal with that. He said, but it's important that you deal with the now and stay in the now and, and do your best here. It doesn't mean to be ignorant of the possibilities of the future, but that's not where your concentration has to be. And that little lecture changed my life tremendously, but in so many ways, because I used it beyond my vision. So the next chunk I lost, you know, rather than saying, oh my God, you know, what is this going to happen? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, I said to myself, oh, well, that's not ideal. Okay, so how has it actually affected you? You know, has it stopped you in any way? Has it slowed you down? Has it made anything more difficult? And usually the answer was not really. Uh, you know, and then a few years later, you know, it started, the answer started to be, well, to some degree. And then when the answer is to some degree or yes, then you say, okay, what's the workaround? What do you mm -hmm. have to do to continue to do what you normally do? And like Jessica yeah. said to me at the very beginning of the film, you learn to use what you have. And, um, and so these two quick lectures from, from Jessica and, and from Sam literally changed my life and uh, has, has made this a much more bearable journey than it had been. What can the medical establishment do how can they improve? I think they're... It's not just, it's not just the medical establishment, Leah. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. it's, our, whole, it's our whole society. I, I started uh, reporting on medicine with the AIDS crisis. I was a producer at 2020. My friends and I were ground zero for AIDS. I knew the first person diagnosed in New York City. I knew the first person diagnosed mm -hmm. in San Francisco. You know, ex-lovers had died. My husband's ex-lovers had died. You know, like every, every gay man in New York, it was utterly terrifying the whole time. But AIDS hit an entitled, educated, uh, young, uh, dynamic group of people who said, screw this, who knew what was happening to them because they were seeing their friends die, who said, screw this, you know, business as usual is not enough. And people like Larry Kramer and Roger McFarland, you know, founded, um, you know, Game and Health Crisis and ACT UP and went to work looking for solutions and getting the establishment to take them into the process and help fundraise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So within 15 years, you know, we had triple therapy for HIV, which was a long time while you're watching friends die, but and the, you know, as you look at horrible diseases and cures, this is pretty good. So when I became, you know, a, pers a person with glaucoma, um, I was sort of shocked that I was in a totally different world. I was in a world of totally passive people. 
I was in a world of people who were uninformed and um, purposefully uninformed, I felt, because their doctors didn't want to deal with their terror if they found out what might really happen to them. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very, very frustrating. So what we've tried to do in our outreach is, is one, to get doctors to inform their patients much earlier as to what's really going on with them. We found that there were a lot of reasons that they weren't referring people to low vision therapy. One was they didn't want to upset them and lose them as patients. Screw, I don't want to hear this. Let me, let me go to another doctor who's going to talk nice to me. Two, they had so limit, their time was so limited that they didn't want somebody you know, crying in their office and having to deal with them emotionally. Uh, and that nor did they want to take the time to offer low vision therapy because to a large degree at that time it wasn't reimbursed because it wasn't in the, in the realm of occupational therapists that much at that time. We're talking 15 years ago. What we try to do is we try to get ophthalmologists to understand how important low vision therapy and rehabilitation is to a patient with a, a small amount of vision loss. And what I ask when I speak to them, I say, tell me if you had, if your patient was a, was a myope and his vision was 20-40, would you refer him or her to, you know, for a refraction and get them corrective lenses? Well, of course. I said, why? At 20, 40, they can get around pretty well. It's not so bad. They said, well, yeah, but you, you, you want them to have the very best vision they can have. And then I say, interesting. So if your patient had a 25% visual field loss, by that to- same token, shouldn't you be referring them at that point to a low vision therapist rather than waiting to 95%? which was mm-hmm. the, the rule of thumb at the time. Standard. Yeah. And uh, the looks that I would get uh, from the audience is always w- was pretty good because the, you could see <laughs> that they got it. They got it. And there are other uh, audiences that, you know, where they see the film. And I remember the very first time we showed it, just before we lost picture, we showed it at Mount Sinai to, to residents and to young attending. And Re- Jessica was there actually for that screening as for our, our major funder. And at the end of the film, a young woman, uh, I think she might have been a, like a first year resident or a you know, senior or a last year student said, oh my God, I can't thank you enough for showing us this film. I had been thinking that my patient's future and success and happiness was all on my shoulders. And I didn't realize that there were people who were trained in ways that I have not been trained that can help my patients in ways that I cannot. And to know that I can refer is such a relief to me. And I looked to our funder and said, yes, we did it. That's exactly what we wanted because our friend is uh, Susan Oliva, who at that time was executive director of the um, Reader's Digest Partners for Sight. She's now executive director of the Lavelle Fund. They had tried to get uh, in the metropolitan area ophthalmologists to refer to low vision therapists. They spent a lot of money doing it and were incredibly unsuccessful. So when I came in with the idea of going blind, um, she very bravely took a chance and said, all right, let's, you know, nothing else is working. Let's try it. And they now refer to it as the most successful project they've ever done. Wow. Is the lack of referral, is that, do you think ophthalmologists have in the past equated failure, failure, failure yeah. with, yeah. with the referral? Yeah. I have failed to save this person's yeah. vision to a significant degree. I have failed. So at this point, I don't want to be attached to this anymore. I have, I yeah. have failed in my goal. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I've heard un- so many unfortunate stories about patients who were told, 
you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And then one day it's, you're well, not. there's nothing more I can do for you. Yep. And at that point, they've got 5% of their visual field left. If that doctor had 10 years before, you know, or 20 years before had said, uh, you know, listen, you know, we don't know what the future is right now, but uh, we don't have a cure for this. You know, you're doing okay, but you may need help in the future. And there's something called a low vision specialist who can help you. It, it, it could lower people's anxiety, their depression, and also t start teaching them the skills that they will need, what may need now or will need in the future. It makes a big difference. Yeah. yeah. And it also yeah. will start emotionally and mentally preparing them for the fact that at some point they will have 10% or 5% of visual. And at that point, they're already prepared for it and they're already in services. And using, and using skills. Yeah. And, and using skills and knowing what else there is. I'll give, tell you a story. I, I was uh, at a fundraiser, a political fundraiser, and it was uh, being given by a friend of mine and, um, uh, and who is also a funder of the film. And she introduced me to this woman, let's call her Mrs. Multibucks. And <laughs> Mrs. Multibucks was, a, uh, was a, a New York lady who gave an enormous amount of money to one of the major art museums every single year. She gave a huge, huge gift. So Beth said, um, uh, oh, Mrs. Multibucks, this is Joe Lovett. Uh, we've been friends for years, and, and Joe is a filmmaker, and he just finished a film called Going Blind. And uh, actually, Joe himself has glaucoma, and so it's a personal story. It's a very interesting film. And Mrs. Multibucks said, isn't that a coincidence? I was just diagnosed with glaucoma this morning. Wow. And, I, and I said, oh, my gosh. I said, I'm very sorry to hear that. And she said, oh, no, not at all. My doctor said it's absolutely nothing to worry about. And I said, <laughs> I really wish I really wish he hadn't said that. It can be a very serious mm -hmm. uh, situation, and um, it really requires you know your your diligence. And she looked at me and she said, No. He said, There's absolutely nothing to worry about. And she got as far away from me as she could. So I tell the story to ophthalmologists, mm -hmm. and I said, So, so this perpetuates the myth that glaucoma is a benign disease. So if you had said when you, Mrs. Multibox walks into your office, if she had said, well, you know, you clearly have glaucoma. And the truth is, we don't know a hell of a lot about it. And an enormous amount of research has to be done because it can go this way, that way, or the other way. And we don't really at this point know why, but there are interesting studies that are being funded and, and done. But uh, no matter what happens, you know, because I think the idea is basically, if you're 65 years old, Hopefully you're going to, you know, drop dead of something else. You're going to get by a bus before she, uh, her sight loss is going to bother her enough to bother you. So I said, so if you instead told her that this was a serious disease, that they needed help and funding, and that there was help available along the way so that if she were to lose vision that was a problem, there are all sorts of modalities that could help her to stay engaged as she is in the world that she's in. One, she would probably have less depression and anxiety, knowing mm -hmm. that she would be, that there's stuff there for her. Two, she might help to fund yours or somebody else's research, you know. And three, she would be more compliant with her medications. And, and those are the three yeah. things the doctors complain about. Compliance, depression and anxiety, <laughs> and lack of funding. And I think just honesty with, 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 and communication with the patient early in the game and ongoing in the game would help tremendously.
but it sounds like their fear of failure is so significant that they just want to really downplay the severity of an eye disorder as much as possible. I think, I think there are a lot of things in play. And I think one (laughs) is the fear of failure. Definitely. One is the fear of losing the patient Two, three is the fear of, uh, of upsetting the patient. And four is the fear of the time that it will take to have the conversation. And I, I think there's an elephant in the room also. It's, it's the fear of the medical system, the way it's set up, where I'm talking yeah. about billing and being able oh, yeah. to justify these mm-hmm. services and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And they don't want to take the time to write the reports and to advocate for the, for the services that they know are needed or will be needed, et cetera, et cetera. That's not going to happen until the patients start to demand it. Exactly. Yes. And that's not, and that's what, what we're trying with going blind and going forward is a two-pronged approach to bring this information to patient groups and, or, or the public who may become patient groups and then, and then also to, the, to physicians and other medical professionals. So, Wait, but, it, but it's, helpful, it's helpful, let me tell you. Uh, a few years ago, we were asked by the American Academy of Ophthalmology to do a film on, on, on low vision rehab. And the film is called, it's a little video, just like six minutes. It's called, There Is Something You Can Do. You can Google it and, and download it. It's also on the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. And uh, what it basically does, it's the uh, head of the AAO, uh, David Park, says quite clearly that early referral to low vision therapy is now the standard of care. Mm. So that if you aren't doing it, you know, you're not keeping up, that can make a difference. Now we have to enforce it. Yeah, there needs to be some, some uh, teeth behind that. But it requires pressure and people have to get together and, and make their, their, themselves known. You know, when I was covering AIDS you go, and I'd go to the international meetings, there would be the scientific se- section on, on one side of the hallway and all the ballrooms you know, covering the different aspects of the, of the research into the virus and the treatment thereof. And on the other side uh, was the psychosocial section. And there were smaller ballrooms you know, dealing with the, the, the issues that, that people were dealing with with HIV and families were dealing with. And vision loss is a huge psychosocial issue. And it really behooves the um, ophthalmology um, organizations to include psychosocial in their scientific yeah. meetings, because what would happen with AIDS is that if you were a heavy-duty researcher, when you walked out of your room, out of your ballroom after giving your presentation, you would still see the other topics being discussed across the hall. Mm-hmm. And there was no way that you could not be aware of what was going on. Then when you sat down um, for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or coffee break, and you'd meet other, some of the social scientists and the people who were uh, doing the work on the ground, you'd get, and also patients would come, and their families, you'd get an idea, a better idea of who you were treating and what their lives were. And this is something that is not going on for the most part in ophthalmology. Unfortunately, we are running to our clock. We have a few more minutes. I would like you to expand a little bit upon the outreach that you're doing now, where people that are hearing this show can go to add their voice to your outreach. And we did discuss doing an open Zoom call for ACB People that are interested after they hear this program, we'd like to sit down and, and be able to expand this conversation some more. But before that, where can they find the outreach you're doing now and where can they find sure. Going okay, Blind so, itself? All right. All right. So our website is www.goingblindmovie.com. 
And uh, so that uh, on that website is a lot of information about the film and it's where you can download the film. Uh, it was free for the month of April, um, but it normally costs a couple of dollars. If an organization wants to buy the film for educational purposes, and it's an educational institute, then it's $300. And they get a DVD that has it audio described, and it's also uh, cut up into teaching modules. You can click and get it in modules according to the chronology of the film or according to the disease state, you know, like, you know, Joe and glaucoma, Jessica and, and, mm. and uh, diabetic retinopathy, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. At our website, we also did a little update, uh, an update on Really Blind, yeah. which is sort of talks about how we've used the film and also what's going on with me. Uh, actually, I lost my, my left eye afterwards. I lost my left eye about three years ago from an infection. Mm -hmm. But the, my good news is that my right eye, which was pretty bad from cataract, I had um, uh, finally uh, decided to take the leap and have the cataract corrected. But because of the kind of glaucoma I had, we've been putting that off because it's very dangerous. But mine went very well, and, and I had a lot of vision, uh, re a lot of acuity returned to me. Things are, are better. That's great. So can I just restate the uh, website is goingblindmovie.com. Sure. Uh, the video can be downloaded. And I know it can be downloaded with uh, audio description and with captions um, mm -hmm. as well. It's so worthwhile to check out this movie. Even as someone who's been totally blind all my life, I, like I said earlier, I was just captivated by it. I, I hope all of you will, will uh, who have not seen it, will check it out. Since Gay Pride Month is coming up for June, I'd just like to mention yeah. that we did, a, we did a film a number of years ago called Gay Sex in the 70s, uh, which talks about the modern uh, gay sexual revolution talks about what life was like before then. And we basically follow the formation of a gay sexual identity from Stonewall in 1969 to the first diagnosed cases of AIDS in 1981. So for this year, uh, the film is always available for streaming at GaySexInThe70s.com. For June 1st, uh, from the very beginning of the day uh, to the very end of the day, uh, those 24 hours, uh, our website will be open uh, for free screening of gay sex in the 70s. And then after that, it is available for purchase. If people enjoy the film, for people who weren't there at the time, it's, a, it's an opportunity to find out what really happened and it was fun. Actually, Joe, that's great info. Thank you so much for sharing. And as you know, BPI, we are an organization that represents the intersectionality between being blind and LGBT. So we also covered many LGBT oriented topics. So that probably is something that we could explore for a future show, maybe Great. even during the month, during Pride Month, yeah. which is June. Like you mentioned, um, definitely talk a little bit more about that topic. Great. We've also been in our own personal discussions, dissecting the intersectionality of the AIDS epidemic and the current pandemic. Yeah, you know yeah. similarities about, and mm -hmm. all this. Yeah. I've been doing a great analysis on on similarities and how. Yeah, the, the we think uh, that would make a great show if you'd be interested yeah. in, in being a panelist yeah. for that as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'd, I'd be very interested because you know we've been looking at some of the early AIDS work. Uh, I did the first uh, television investigation on government inaction uh, in 1983, and mm -hmm. uh, when you look at that piece today and you see the absolute stonewalling by the government, and you see yeah. what, 
what's been going on now, even in, 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 in much more in the public view. It's quite amazing. And it, I think it's important to get this perspective. And, and, you know, because video lasts, we now have an opportunity, uh, I mean, mm -hmm. to learn much more easily from the past than we did before. I think it, it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for people to see that this inaction and bumbling isn't a one-time thing. No. Well, the Reagan administration wanted absolutely nothing to do nothing with funding, to do with funding yeah. HIV until research Rock at Hudson, all. At least. It was not until Rock yeah, Hudson, Rock Hudson Rock died, that, mm -hmm. yeah, who was a personal friend. I was impressed with, with the book and the band played on by mm -hmm. Randy Shields. And yeah, it, great book. It, has, it has such a, such an integrated analysis of the AIDS epidemic in terms of politics, society, yeah. medical, and, and personal accounts of real people and faces. So it's, it's, it's like Anthony said a moment ago, it's appalling how now we're living a situation that has so many similarities. Yes. Uh, and, and, it, and this is, you know, back then it was thought that it was only something affecting the gay community. Now it's... Right people still want to think that this is something that only affects old people or only, right. will only people in nursing homes, care yeah. facilities, yeah. Yeah. even worse. There are people that feel and that oh, it only affects black people. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. It is so obnoxious and, and appalling as if that is okay. Well, unfortunately time has done it again. We have reached the end of pride connection. I want to thank you so much. Uh, Joe Lovett, for being on the program. I encourage everybody to check out this film. It's captivating. Thank you, Jessica, for being part of our show as well. Thank you. And thank you, Sarah, for, for sitting in with us. And as always, thank you so much, Anthony and Gabe, for being spectacular co-hosts and keeping me on track. And if you have any questions or feedback for us, please email membership blind lgbt pride all one word blind lgbt pride.org and check out our website at blind lgbt pride.org thank you everybody stay well be safe and we will see you next time pride connection will be right back after this message help i need somebody Let's face it, we are increasingly challenged to keep up with ever-changing technology. Would you like more help with how to use some tech device or equipment? How about programs and apps in your personal life and work? Consider joining Blind Information Technology Specialists, BITS. Membership gives you access to our exclusive email list for exchanging ideas, getting sometimes hard-to-find technical assistance, online presentations, workshops, and tutorials, and our live chat sessions. To join, go to bits-acb.org or email treasurer at bits-acb.org. Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org. And join our conversation. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. They will find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers.